People for Economic Justice is a non-profit and non-political organisation formed to support and educate ordinary people on their right to lawfully challenge the banking institutions. These same banking institutions, as is common knowledge, received a massive bailout in Ireland overnight in September 2011, which saves them from the brink of collapse. This bailout came at the direct expense of the Irish people. The banks have chosen to repay this assistance by forcing homeowners and business owners out onto the street, taking their possessions from them. This is done because of the people's inability to pay back the debts they owe. The inability to do so, of course, stems directly from the bank bailout that sank the country into a deep recession. The aims of People for Economic Justice are to lawfully challenge repossessions of homes, to keep people in their homes, to lawfully challenge all financial debt, to educate people in the lawful challenge of debt and to support people in difficult situations. So Ben, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are things? Good, how's things with you? Very good, thanks. Can't complain. And for those who might have been, uh, well, I suppose if they're in Ireland, living under a rock for the last while, but we've many listeners from around the world. So tell us a little bit about yourself and where you came from and how you've got to where you are now. Okay, um, I don't know how far back you want to go. (laughs) Well, it's totally up to you, Ben. (laughs) Okay, well, I suppose I was in the security business for a long time. I was a bodyguard um, back in the day when my leg was able to go up over my head. (laughs) (laughs) As you do. And uh, then I set up a security business myself, doing alarms and stuff like that. And, you know, we did quite okay. We had a business called Housetronics, and um, it was successful enough. But, of course, when the downturn, the economy came, I suppose it hit everybody equal strength, you know. Maybe some did slightly better than others, but, uh, you know, it's kind of it's swept everybody off their feet, I suppose, and we're not used to it, especially anyone kind of, you know, in their 20s to 25 to 30 years of age, because they probably were just starting to work because the bad 80s were going out, and, you know, they probably know nothing but good times, so probably a slap in the face for everyone, you know? Yeah. Some people said maybe we needed it, you know, we were running away with ourselves as well. <laughs> Well, there, there, there is that argument, and some people say that we're, uh, well, I suppose the recession has sent Ireland back to the roots. Uh, personally, I don't fully agree, but I kind of know where maybe they might Yeah, I know where they were coming from. You know, some people <clears throat> lost maybe some of the nicer stuff that we were kind of known for. I'm not sure if that kind of had anything to do with, with you know, money or whatever, but just, I think generally societies can lose that a little bit, you know. But, um, you know, uh, poverty, I suppose, is a great leveler for people, you know, and maybe we just forgot a little bit about what's important in life, you know, maybe we just forgot a little bit of that, you know. Yeah. But I think, you know, in our society, we're always told to better ourselves, so, you know, there's no harm in doing that, you know. Now, now of course, we're told we all went mad. I don't agree with that either, you know. I think, you know, 
I would always tell my children to try and better themselves, no matter what. I mean, sure, if that's not your object in life, I don't know what is. Absolutely. And as we know, I mean, Ireland hit recession pretty hard from about 2008 onwards. And we heard all the media stories as people did around the world. It's a global thing. It's not just an Irish thing. But Irish people have been hit particularly hard. And I think one of the reasons, Ben, and maybe you'll disagree with me on this, is that our government and successive governments now seem to be absolutely at the behest of Europe and World Bank, IMF, etc. And that has really sent things spiralling very, very quickly for us in comparison to many other places around the world. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, obviously, I won't agree with you or disagree with you because um, people may not know that we actually have a court case against the government um, for doing that because we were doing quite well until our government decided to bail out um, the commercial banks. And it was a disastrous thing to do because, um, you know, a debt was passed on to the people, the sovereign people of this country and um, it didn't benefit the people in any way. So, I mean, it was a disastrous thing to do. The government didn't have a mandate to do it, and that's why it hit our country um, probably worse than most. Um, So uh, we have a court case um, pending against the Taoiseach and the Minister of Finance. Uh, A lot of people kind of don't know that, and we're waiting now maybe till the next bailout fund is, is announced, whatever the next payment is to be. And if we're prepared, we'll go in with an injunction into the High Court to try and stop that payment or or maybe the next payment after that if we're not prepared. But we have done the summons to court for the Taoiseach and the Minister for Finance and the Chief State Solicitor is defending both, both of them. So it's one to watch. So tell us a little bit about that then, because um, for anyone uninitiated, I mean, surely you can't just take the leader of this country to court just because you're unhappy with him, or can you? Well, you can. I mean, first of all, you have to prove you've got what's called locus standi. You know, it's basically legal standing or standing in, in the case. So, I mean, because not everybody can sue everybody for anything. So, I mean, if somebody has a car crash on the road, you can't just go out and think, oh, she's got a whiplash. I think I'll sue for that. Yeah. <laughs> so that'd be crazy. But, you see, in our country, we used to have in our first constitution um, the right to call a referendum if you were unhappy with something. And you had to get a certain amount of votes. I think it was 75,000 votes or 70,000 votes. Now, if that was a, an avenue that was open to me today, and it's an avenue that our forefathers left us, you know, if that avenue was open to me today, that's an avenue I would have explored rather than the courtroom. Okay. Because I think I could have got them signatures in a weekend. Uh, if I had a table outside the GPO in Dublin and say O'Connell Street in Limerick and Patrick Street there in Cork and over in Nair Square in Galway, I think I would have got them uh, signatures over the weekend because I just would have had big banners at the table, um, please sign up to uh, stop the bailout. You know, and I think I would have got the signatures to call a referendum. I think you would have so, got them so even that quicker. that facility is taken away from us. Also in this country, you're not allowed to do a class action. And then, so the only thing you can do is bring the government to court. And at that stage, you have to try and prove that you have locus standi. In other words, that you are directly affected. So uh, I have a young family here. My business is gone. We're, I suppose, under threat of losing our homes, like a lot of people. Yep. And... Um, all for the sovereign money and the way things, the way I look at it is it's our children's inheritance from our forefathers and from their own fathers from the blood, sweat and tears of all workers in this country. 
So that's why I'm hoping we'll give me locus standi. Um, Michael Crossy had a case against the government and he proved he had locus standi, so I'll be going down them sort of tracks. I have the actual statement, the claim in front of me, if you'd like me to read a couple of the points. So Absolutely, yeah. I think that would uh, enlighten many of us, yeah. Okay, well, this here is um, is what's called plenary summons. And on that, you just do the basic outline of the claim, of what you're claiming. Okay. And then the government have now asked us, or the chief state solicitor has asked us for a full statement of claim. So in that, we go through all these points and facts. And, you know, if we want to prove, you know, have documentary evidence or if we want to bring witnesses, we name them all here. So the first thing is that I have said on the on our claim is the first point is the actions of Antishuk and the Minister of Finance uh, in paying back unsecured debts to private banks whom took part in illegal activities is repugnant to the Constitution of Ireland. So that's my first point and I don't think anybody will they'll have a hard job disproving that. I mean because (laughs) anybody who who knows anything about banking I mean the illegal activities I can prove because uh, there's five years in prison for breaking the serious liquidity laws that the banks are supposed to uphold in this country. Mm-hmm. And the mere fact that banks got bailed out means they broke the liquidity law because the bank, the liquidity law is about keeping the bank liquid. In other words, having cash flow. Yeah. And if they needed a bailout, where we had to have a serious meeting during the night to bail out several of them, uh, obviously they broke liquidity laws. Um, number two on it is uh, the said actions are a violation of the constitution as this action was convened during a night meeting with members of the last Fianna Fáil government without the full support or knowledge of the cabinet or Senate. so again you know to do something like that you would need all members um, informed um, number three it says um, it is also against best practices of international law as, as it is an odious debt because it was taken on by a Fianna Fáil regime um, that had death to the dubious leader and corrupt members as outlined in the Mahan Tribunal at a cost uh, um, as a cost to the state in excess of 500 million euros and it did not benefit the people instead has become one of the most taxing debts ever incurred since the formation of the state. Now, odious debt is a, is a thing defined in, in UN law and basically, you know, basically says any debt taken on by any regime in the country, if it didn't directly benefit the people, then it should not be paid back. And not only that, within that law, there's warnings to the people who actually put up the money that they should have no expectation of being paid back as it's classed odious death under UN law. So if anyone can show us then how the people have directly benefited from um, bailing out the bondholders, I'd love to see that. Well, I think it's blatantly obvious that we haven't, and the country well, has been the case. I mean, yeah. We're being taxed now on our water. I mean, basic human rights now are being taxed on water, your home, and sewerage. I mean, these are basic human rights that we have. Incredible. And we, you, know, you can't tax a basic human right. Um, the number four point that I have on this is the defendants do not have a mandate from the people of Ireland for such actions but uh, they have put the promises made to the people second in favour of promises made to a banking system. Um, So basically, um, you know, they don't have a mandate from the people because I have video footage of Enda Kenny. Uh, There's a famous one, you know, Brad Carr saying not one cent more or not one red cent more or something to that effect. So this is what they were singing from the hymn sheet on the way into government. And like, you know, the minute going into government, a complete U-turn. And people say to me, oh, Ben, sure, look at, you know, politicians always lie. 
Well, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> this is one of the most taxing and serious times that ever hit our country. And to go in lying at that point on exactly how you're going to handle that and then do a complete U-turn, I'm sorry, you know, uh, we don't have to accept that. I agree, and I suppose politicians would argue that they have a mandate from the people because they've been elected. But the point you're making there, which I think is um, is a salient point, is that... Because they lied, and it is proven now at this point, with the benefit of hindsight, that they did lie in order to get elected, well, that that, that removes, I suppose, tacitly that uh, any consent that was given or any mandate, you know? Yeah, well, the mandate is really... Like, the mandate is more than your vote to get them in. Like, you know, if I said to you, well, vote for me, and then you vote me and I'm in, I didn't actually give you a mandate per se, you know, in the sense that you didn't ask. So, uh, so if, you know, if I asked you to give me a vote and you said, oh, right, Ben, well, what do you stand for? What are you going to do? And I said to you, well, I'm definitely not going to do this. You know, now, like people say to me, Ben, you can't be that naive as to think politicians don't lie. Of course they lie and they lie all the time. Mm. But I think, you know, when it's, well, I think at all times they shouldn't be lying. Oh, <laughs> stop. But I mean, you know, it might be okay maybe that it wasn't quite a lie. They said they'd do a, a school bus run and they just weren't able to do it. You know, their intent might have been quite good. Yeah. But but for such a thing that has been a disaster for for this country since the foundation of the state, I know of no other financial disaster since the foundation of this state as big as this. And you cannot go into government lying about how you're going to handle it because the whole country was distraught because we were doing quite well until our Fianna Fáil government said they were going to bail these guys out. Mm-hmm. And then when you're making promises that not one red cent are they going to get and, and that's the mandate you go in on. And then you completely, you actually do worse than Fianna Fáil because now you're taxing more to pay them back more. I mean, at that stage, you do not have a mandate from the people because like nobody voted for this government to do that. Exactly. You know, so they don't have a mandate from the people because I certainly didn't vote for them to do that. Yeah, and that, that I suppose, brings us on then to the next point on your statement. Yeah, um, this is one that's kind of worded by an American guy who's helping us and he's, he's well up on, on currencies and all. I don't know if you know him. Um, I just can't think of his name now, but Mike, anyway. This <laughs> is his first name. I can't think of his second name. Okay. But it says here, the debt uh, precipitates from an insolu- insoluble obfuscation of the currency, which perpetually multiplies debt upon the populace in such a way that eventually we, the people, can only suffer a terminal sum of debt, which makes it mathematically impossible even to maintain a vital circulation thereafter. Now, remember we wrote this some nine months ago, and you can clearly see that we're actually heading for a terminal sum of debt, which makes it mathematically impossible to maintain even a vital circulation. Yeah. And you can actually see that, like businesses on the high streets are, you know, starting to die. You'll see an awful lot of them boarded up in all the towns around the country. Receivers are moving in everywhere. Um, Suicides are up to two a day. The farming community are having tractors and farms repossessed. I mean, you can just see what we predicted nine months ago actually happening. So how they're going to disprove that one in court, I just do not know because you only look out the court window or actually, in fact, look inside the court because every day when I'm in the courts and I see the number of banks looking for repossession of houses, machinery, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. 
So that's going to be hard. Um, number six on it was receiving bailouts from member states of the European Union or the European Central Bank to pay back private corporations is in conflict with the Lisbon Treaty. Again, we will be mentioning the exact sections in the treaty for that. So, um, um, you know, and, and remember, this is the Lisbon Treaty that they asked us to vote on. And when we did, they said, sorry, wrong answer. We'll ask again. Yeah. Uh, I always think what they should have done was um, at least give us best of three. I mean, if I was tossing a coin with you and I was heads and I'd go again and I got halves, you'd at least be fair with me and go best out of three. Well, that's the thing. I mean, for for anybody who who might have voted no the first time and then they're told to vote again, and just because a yes came up, well, as you say, I mean, that's evens, but you'll never see them put it, when they get the result they want, they'll never put it to us again. Of course, but I, I'm always very dubious about the, that election, I'm, you know, because anyone I spoke to who was voting no to the Lisbon, and, yeah. and then I spoke to obviously some people who were voting yes, when I spoke to the yes people after that vote, they said when the next election came, they were definitely voting no, yeah. because they just said, like, you know, Fair, it's fair. We lost the election, and we're asking you again. So they went against it, even. And of course, the people who voted no were disgusted. So they were really no. <laughs> I said no, so no means no. So I don't know how that election was passed. I'm very dubious about that. Well, I think a lot of people are because um, anecdotally. And any kind of surveys that were carried out, almost everybody, certainly who I spoke to and people who I know and have interviewed on this show who spoke to people about it, they know practically nobody who voted for a yes. So unless it was people saying they were voting no and suddenly going into the ballot box and voting yes, there seems to be something afoot there. And I mean, basically, the thing was passed in the end without a whimper. Yeah, no, and I don't believe it for a minute. And, uh, you know, a lot of people should maybe YouTube Nigel Farage mm, and right. uh, look up Respect the Irish Vote. Now, this guy is from the UK Independence Party. And um, you'll see them all with green T-shirts in the EU um, commission over there in, in Brussels. And uh, they all wore green T-shirts that respect the Irish vote. And they were shuffed because your man is very anti um, this uh, well, he knew Europeans were going to be just turning into a big European bank and you have private corporations then running our country. Yeah. And you can actually see it. I mean, it's a, it's a very dangerous road we're on now. Well, and, it is. Um, and it's a corporatocracy we're living in as opposed to a true I mean, democracy. There's no question about it. I mean, we'll all be going around with little logos now tattooed on our arms soon if we don't, if we don't stop. <laughs> and um, when you have banks dictating the policy of a sovereign country, I mean, like, how did that happen? Like, that happened, obviously, when we were asleep. I mean, like, our fathers and our, and our, and our forefathers would be turning in the grave. When you think of the bloodshed and everything in this country to gain our independence, and less than, uh, less than a lifetime, less than a generation, we have now corporate banks running the country. I mean, what's the point in voting? I mean, at least let's vote for the corporation. Let Coca-Cola put themselves on the ballot and, and Bank of Ireland and Deutsche Bank and vote for your best bank to run the country. <laughs> because that's what we're just short of doing. Well, that's right. And this leads on to a question, Ben. Do you think then that politics and the system that we have at the moment is a futile exercise and that we're presented with just a kind of a left-right paradigm and we're given uh, the illusion of choice as opposed to a real choice? Because let's face it, no matter who you vote for in this country at any given election, you're voting for, I suppose, a different side of the same coin because they are in the pockets Absolutely. of big business. I, I keep saying that. Look, it's Tweedledum or Tweedledee. 
And, you know, we really have to get away from that type of politics. Now, I'm trying to start with a number of people around the country, a political party, and I know most people are going to switch off at this point because it's such a snore fest, and I agree with them. And, and the word politics sometimes gets stuck in my throat because normally anybody from my age group to younger, uh, the minute you hear politics, you may as well be hearing crime, deception, fraud, because it's like they're all the same adjective. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, so I know exactly what, what it means. But what we're trying to do is, first of all, uh, we're starting up a political party called Direct Democracy Ireland. We have a number of groups in the country who have very kindly donated offices and members and everything else around the country. And um, what Direct Democracy is, is basically, I, like, I can only talk from the 70s on when I was sort of, I suppose, old enough to recognize what was going on at a young age. And now it's probably gone on since the 1932 or 22, even, you know. Yeah. But my impression of politics was that, um, you know, it was never, the government never were in power for the people. They were in power for vested groups, you know, vested interest groups, lobby groups corporations, oil companies, whatever else it was. And, you know, what you were really voting for was a government that would promise you a little less tax and a little less this, you know, those little sweeteners. Mm-hmm. But actually, the actual running of the government was not for the people, you know. So direct democracy, when our forefathers uh, wrote the first constitution, the articles 47 and 48 were removed from the constitution. And that's why when you were saying to me, like, God, you're taking the government to court, there is no other route for me. Articles 47 and 48 were removed from the Constitution, and they were the right to referendum. So our political party wants to basically put that back into the Constitution for starters. Yeah. Because vested groups and corporate governments would uh, have recognized that as a huge stumbling block. Um, so that was the first thing that was removed, and that should be your clue <laughs> that if they remove something really quickly, yeah. that should be your clue. Now remember, they removed it from the constitution with that referendum, and it was quite sneakily done. And how, how was that done then? Well, what they did was they said they had the right to remove an article, you know, um, in emergency cases, but only temporarily for seven years. So they removed it for seven years, and then they. Uh, extended it for another seven years and then I suppose you know the country was new was probably doing okay and then when the constitution I think came out in 1932 I think my, my, my figures are right there 1932 they basically said to the people that um, the government retained the right of referendum and you see it's all magic of words yeah, yeah. Uh, retaining the right of referendum they didn't have it to retain in the first place you well, see well that's it surely it was the people's right Exactly. And, but the word magic is terrific. Like, even if you take the latest thing we voted on there, the fiscal treaty, okay? Now, when they were talking about this fiscal treaty first, they kept referring to the fiscal treaty this and the fiscal treaty that, and that's all I, I remember hearing. Mm. And, of course, most people probably didn't look up fiscal. When you look up fiscal, you see it's basically tax or taxing, okay? Yeah. So as more people cop down with fiscal, uh, you'll see they started to rebrand it then as the stability agreement. Do you remember that? Well, that's it. And I mean, the word stability in itself, <laughs> so what does that evoke? Ben Gilroy and his cronies, I mean, if we were against stability, we would have to be mad, wouldn't we? Exactly. We were against taxing more, right? But of course, then we couldn't say anything because we would have been against stability. And this is the, and you know, I don't know what it is about nations as a whole. You know, 
you can't fool one man on his own too easy but there's something about a large group of people that you can just seem to fool easy and I, I do notice this quite a lot even about say you know speed cameras mm. when they were called speed cameras you know um, there was objections and blah 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 but then the minute they start calling them safety cameras you see all of a sudden you couldn't be against them because you know they're for safety you know they might save a child's life and all and they're really just tax collecting cameras I mean let's be honest yeah. wordplay you know and, and that's why I'm not advocating dangerous driving or anything that, you know you know that but I'm just saying you know, we need to tap on to this sort of word magic that just drives me crazy you know I kind of shoot for the dip and I know I'm going to get into trouble now and again for doing that but at least I call a spade a spade, and you don't have to. You don't have to ask me twice about something. You know, I just I say it, and that's it. So I, I hate this sort of word magic and word play that we do. You know, with fiscal becoming, you know, stability and this sort of stuff. So our main objection is to our, our objective, should I say, is to um, to bring around uh, direct democracy. And as I say, direct democracy is where democracy, and it was real democracy. And our country has not seen real democracy, um, certainly in my lifetime. Now, people say to me, oh, democracy, you have a vote. Yeah. And that's the thing that they brainwash in school, to think that if you have a vote, it must be democracy. But that's not democracy at all, because um, democracy is not about having a vote, it's about having a say. See, we all had a vote, but none of us had a say. Because I've never met one person in this country yet that's happy with paying out these um, gamblers who took a gamble on the stock exchange. The interest rate at the time reflected the the risk, if you like. And and then when their horse fell, we all had to bail them out. And it is quite astonishing because it's that simple, Ben. I mean, if I go into a bookies and I bet on a horse or a soccer team or whatever it might be, and the horse doesn't come in for me or the team loses, well... Well, yes, I mean, it is, and while I would prefer to bail you out, because you seem like these people were faceless to me. (laughs) So, Ben, um, I will come back to direct democracy and indeed the political party, but I want to just, um, I suppose, finish up discussing the court case, and when can we expect to hear more about this, or do we have any kind of dates? Because no doubt we're not going to hear too much about it in the mainstream media. Yeah, although I think it'll be a big enough story that they'd probably they'd have to cover it. Do you know what I mean? Because if we are successful with with the uh, injunction, then it's going to off a leg on their faces. So I I think they will have some press coverage. RT will try, you know, bury it as something ridiculous, you know, yeah. because that's you know RT is the spokesman for the government. So I mean, once you know that and know where like what pulp that everybody's singing from, you'll get an idea of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last couple of points are just small ones. Uh, receiving bailouts from member states, oh, I said that, was um, was in conflict of the Lisbon Treaty. Yeah. Um, number seven, I have the winding down of Anglo-Irish Bank is in direct conflict with the Minister of Finance's own law in the Irish Bank, sorry, the Anglo-Irish Bank Corporation Act 2009, which states that the bank is to be kept as a going concern. Now, I thought this was hilarious. The ink wasn't dry on this act that I was reading when I seen them screwing the name of Anglo-Irish down off the wall on the news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make this up. And it's in their own act that it's be kept as a going concern. The last thing then we want to do is examine the breach of trust between the government and the people. Because, you know, trust law is the highest law going. And the government are the trustees of the state. And we are supposed to be the beneficiaries. Well, let's face it, there isn't an ounce of trust at this stage. 
Well, no, not of course, not only that. Did you ever feel like a beneficiary of the state? Absolutely not. They want <laughs> us as debtors. You, like I always keep telling me this people, and, and like you know, a lot of people kind of think, God, that that's the craziest thing I ever heard. But you know, research it. The two most um, richest countries in Europe in natural resources. Can you name them? I would go personally for Norway and Ireland. You're close, but it's Greece and Ireland. Okay, well, they're Greece. <laughs> and <laughs> that makes it this. even more extraordinary, doesn't it? It certainly does in light of what we see every day of the week in Greece. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, so we have huge natural resources here. From First of all, our fishing, uh, our fishing you know, I mean, we it's gone. <laughs> we had the best fishing rights probably in the world, you know, and uh, they were worth billions every year and they're gone. Um not to mention our, our wind energy, our gas and oil rights, and, and we're rich in oil and gas, you know, <laughs> and you'll see it over the next few years. Um, our mining rights, Tara Mines, you know, takes out two train loads of zinc every day out of this country, you know, and all I think we get from us is, is just the tax, that's all. No profits, no nothing else, just, just whatever taxes on it, that's all. So we're not the beneficiaries of this of this earth that we call Ireland here. You know, the states may be a different corporation sort of thing, but we are not the beneficiaries. We should be. I mean, the, the governments are put in basically in trust law. They are the trustees. And trust law is the highest law. And, and you know, the, the citizens of the states are basically supposed to be the beneficiaries. So and let's backtrack a little bit there, Ben, because I'm, I'm left reeling here. I mean... You're, you're trying to tell me that we've the best fishing and we've the best mining and we've all these natural resources and we've just given them away um, when I yeah. say we, the yeah, successful government. And the excuse was to the corporate buddies was that we didn't have the expertise to run them. So, so let's and just, rather, rather than get somebody who does have the expertise and learn from them, let's just give them away. That's the attitude. Yes, yeah, that's it. Yeah. One of the actual oil fields was sold uh, for one euro or one pound, I think it was at the time because it had to be done on paper, so they had to put in a nominal figure. And um, what we hope to do with direct democracy is to re um, to relook at all these contracts, because, you know, the people themselves of this state can make up laws, and we can retrospect laws, and we can do anything we want in this state that we wish. Mm. And basically, if these natural resources were sold or conned out of us uh, in any way, and there was a breach of trust then we can revisit them uh, contracts and, and certainly have a look at them in law. And I don't think many of the contracts that we got done would stand up in any law. Uh, because nothing is, nothing is open or in the public. And that's what we want with direct democracy too, that all tenders... You see, we, we say public tender in this country, and it's not public. It, what, we, what we know to understand in this country when we say public tender means anybody out in the public can tender, right? Yeah but it's still a private tender in the sense that you never know who got it, why they got it, how much it was. Okay. Do you understand? So public tender to me would mean all cards on the table. Everybody knows who tendered. Everybody knows how much they tendered for. Everybody knows who got it and the reasons why they got it. 
Because you do hear anecdotally when the state puts out two public tender for, let's say, to build a road, for argument's sake. Yeah. And you have a company in Cork who will give a quote of 100 million and your yes. company in Dublin and they'll quote 112 million yet quite often it's a company from the UK or the US or wherever it might be who would exactly. have put in a quote for 250 million who get the actual contract exactly because the government is getting a larger slice off that right to back payments or something and that's why like if you take Switzerland for instance right Switzerland has direct democracy now I wouldn't wish the Swiss on us and I don't mean to insult any of our Swiss <laughs> friends that may be listening or, or not would I wish us on, on the Swiss we're, we're different people yeah. different backgrounds everything else but the Swiss have direct democracy and have it for the last God knows 800 years or something but they're one of the richest countries in the world they're one of the safest countries in the world their banks are probably one of the safest that's why everybody keeps their gold there yeah um um, they have the highest standard of living probably in the world, if, definitely in Europe, but probably in the world, and their services are probably the best in the world. I mean, you can eat your food off the streets over there because they have a real sense of owning the place, you know, because they have a direct say in everything. Now, in Switzerland, with all these great services and everything they have, they spend something like uh, 36% of their GDP, okay? Yeah. Now, you take that in relation to Ireland, Ireland, our services used to be good. We won't complain about everything. Our roads are, are terrific and stuff like that. But in general, our health services now and a lot of our other services are second rate at best. Mm-hmm. And we pay almost 68% of our GDP on our services. Now, you know, I try to explain to people that, you know, we've gone so immune to it because we don't, we don't have a sense of actual ownership in this country. You know, citizens don't. So when we see something being, you know, being graffitied or bus shelters being broken, or whatever, we don't care. We don't have a sense of ownership. We don't have a sense that it's coming out of our pockets, you know, yeah. where the Swiss do. And, and that's why I think they spend their money wisely. Now, I was only explaining to someone the other day that we seen in the newspaper that there was two light bulbs changing the guard station and it cost us €1,600. Euro. Now, you know... <laughs> How can that be? Look, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of light bulb jokes we could tell here. <laughs> so are, are we looking at a situation where there's so much middle management or layers of bureaucracy that it's just... It's of not course. just. I mean, that has to be what it is. Now, I tell you what drove me insane when I started this sort of crusade, and I hope I don't drive people mad, but, you know, I used to go and see TVs, you see, and, and because I lived in the real world with a real company and that, so when, I, when a guy came to me with a problem, and he said, Ben, I have a problem, I need two security cameras put up there, and I need to be able to watch them at home on my TV. Yeah. I'd say, okay. And the next morning, I'd order the stuff, and we'd get the guys, and we'd get the tools, and we'd go and do it, and it was done the next day. Okay. Now, when I go to people in government and I say, look, this needs to be done. Okay, well, you know what we'll do now? We'll, we'll call a committee, right? This is the great term. We'll, we'll get a committee and then a subcommittee and then a review committee and then a... And it's just... And it could, this could go on for months about something that's really serious. And maybe it's me, you know. It, maybe it is me, but I, mean, I just don't see that as a way to do something. I remember years ago when I was a kid, I was in this priest's office one time, and I just remembered this sign on his wall, and it said, God so loved the earth 
that he didn't send the committee. <laughs> <laughs> well, it says it all. I just thought that was really good, like, you know. Um, so, so that's what the nonsense drives me insane. And there's always these tribunals and committees. And somebody handed me a book the other day about corruption in Irish politics from 1922. And, oh, my God, it's like an encyclopedia. And it talks about these tribunals that I even forgot about. Do you know about the, do you remember the meat tribunal and yeah. all this sort of stuff yeah. and the angel dust and the, oh, look. And all the money that costs, even the Manhattan Tribunal, as I mentioned earlier on, cost 500 million. I mean, you know, look at all the solicitors and all that just became millionaires on, on the, you know, this terrible thing that happened in our country. And, you know, I, I just, if you notice with county councils and stuff like that, you'll notice coming to Christmas time, there's always roadworks. And a guy in the council told me out straight, this is the sort of nonsense that we have to waste money in this country, that in this state, apparently, that if councils don't use up their quota of whatever budget they had for the year, and they're actually left with an excess, they won't get as much the following year. Yeah, that's right? true. So they just dig roads for the sake of them, or patch up roads, or whatever they do. But this, to me, it sounds ridiculous, because I'm thinking to myself, like, if you were running a business, you would reward people with the amount of money they handed back every year. Of course. And you would promise them a bigger budget the following year. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a nonsense. Now, I'll give you an example of something. We were talking about this, and one of the actual uh, days during the summer, it was lashing rain. I know that was nearly every day of the summer, but the, the council in Mead obviously had a budget, and they obviously, you know, work it out what has to be spent where. Now, because, again, I, like most people, live in the real world, I found this extraordinary. And yes, I noticed people walking by and they didn't even seem to notice, right? And I'll tell you what was happening. The council were out watering the plants while it was absolutely belting down with rain. Well, it's amazing you say that, Ben, because I experienced that in Carlow, where I live, about three weeks ago, not once, but twice in the same day with the same flowers on a day it was lashing rain and the flowers were dead. Now, but that's the point, right? So my thing is that if you can't notice that, I mean, say I'm the manager of the council even, and I don't notice that glaring something waste of money. I mean, and, and we're talking just a low-level thing about watering plants, but I mean, if, if you don't notice it at that level, I mean, imagine the wastage that goes on at the very top level when we talk about selling oil fields and stuff like that. And I mean, you know, I just don't know. I remember just staring at, and we videoed it on the phone for anybody who doesn't believe it. We might actually put it up on the website. <laughs> because <laughs> we were looking at it, and there was people walking by, and nobody noticed. And I really think that's why we are actually, with the word politics, as I said, to get stuck in my throat sometimes, because we, we are so removed from it now. I think that's where they want us. You know, just, it's poison. It's nothing to do with us, you know. And, and we're so removed from money being spent by government that we're so removed from government, or, or we see them so removed from us, or there's such a gaping gap between the citizens and government in this country that, you know, the government is supposed to be our servants, as I say, they're supposed to be the trustees of our account. Yeah. And, you know, we obviously don't feel like that. Because if that was happening in, in, in Switzerland... <laughs> There would be phone calls to beat the band. You'd get some old woman hitting the guy with a brolly and telling him to get in off the road. <laughs> yeah, I think really that's the problem. I mean, that's just, I know it's only a small thing, but it actually highlighted the problem in this country so much 
that, you know, people didn't actually notice it. And it comes back to that sense of ownership or sense of pride that you um, described with the Swiss that we don't seem to have. So be it graffiti or be it somebody wasting money or public resources or whatever it is. And when people hear about maybe, I don't know, millions being given to bondholders, they can't really equate that. The figures are so large, it's almost like a different language to them. Whereas yeah, that's right. Well, you see, when I was going to school, I'm not sure if we talked about billions. We, we certainly talked about millions. I remember those six zeros in it, so billions. And I know there's a difference between a UK billion and an American billion. Yeah. Um, but we never talked in them figures. And like, you know... You know the big hangar up at, up at Dublin Airport? We're talking about that full of suitcases, full of 50-pound notes or 50-euro notes. I mean, that's the sort of figures we're talking about. No wonder no one can comprehend that amount of money being wasted. And remember, this was just on a horse that ran that we didn't even put the money on. And if that horse had won, we weren't even going to gain from it. I mean, these people don't share their profits with the, with the country. So, you know, we shouldn't be sharing the losses. And not only are we, I don't mean not sharing the loss, we just picked up the loss. And, you know, these guys who made these investments, at best they would have hoped to get maybe 52 cents to the euro or 58 cents to the euro. That would have been quite good. Our government has paid them 100%. You know, they would have never have got that in their wildest dreams, even if their horse had have won. Uh, and, and all the while people are committing suicide and they're being driven from their homes and farms and properties and their lives are becoming more and more miserable and obviously more miserable as weeks and months go on in Ireland at the moment. Of course. That just brings me on to another thing that um, I don't know if you noticed our letters to the lotto on our website. That's right, yeah, on peoplefreeeconomicjustice.com if anyone yeah. wants to check I them out. i tell you what happened there is a number of farmers and uh, business people around the country had made several complaints to us about KPMG when we did a um, we did a demonstration outside Savile's receivers mm-hmm. um, because they were moving in on Irish farms and businesses and um, we had a demonstration and then we got an awful lot of complaints from people around the country talking about KPMG and I've had several meetings with KPMG and while, while some of the people that I meet with are nice genuine people in general I have to say that most of them are absolute corporate thugs now we were recording one conversation of a meeting I went in because, you know, I always try and do that for evidence. And I was recording the meeting and I asked, because this man that we brought in, a businessman, was nearly suicidal, like, you know. And when I brought him into the meeting with KPMG, you know, there's, there's law cases that prove the receiver has an equitable duty of care and good faith to the person they're receiving the property from. Yeah. And I just mentioned to the guy in the duty of good faith um, and duty of care, and he was saying, oh, look, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know, you have a duty of care to this man. And he goes, look, I don't give two hoots about his duty of care, okay? You know, and I said, oh, that's great, because this is recorded. <laughs> and then he starts to backtrack. Then, oh, well, I didn't mean it that way, and I didn't mean it that way. And I said, listen, mate, you know, you ain't going to bully me around, because I'll do what it takes, and I, I don't care. I mean, I won't break the law. But I'll do what it takes to get things done because I'm just sick of this country and the way we allow our citizens to be treated. So we had several complaints anyway about KPMG after we did the, um, you know, the protest outside Tabo's because people were saying to us that we really should have been uh, protesting outside of KPMG first because right. they were worse. And then they were also disgusted about the lottery because 
I don't do it a lot, and I didn't really notice it myself, but it, because we had so many complaints, I watched it one night, and they make some reference to our advisors or our independent auditors or something like that, KPMG. Now, the thing that was put to us was that uh, KPMG are are one of the most aggressive receivers. So you have a guy who's in big money trouble, and what he wants to do was, you know, dream a little. This is where the lotto kind of even sells it to you. You know, I don't know if anyone genuinely really believes we'll ever win the lotto, but it's nice to dream, and we always, you know, buy the ticket, and we think, oh, you know, what would you do with the winnings, and i do this, and i do that, and that's part of the, I suppose, charm of the lotto, you know. You can forget about your worries for them few hours. (laughs) Well, that's their sales pitch. Yeah, and they're sort of like a rehab organization in the sense that they do a lot of good work as well. You know, I don't want to knock the lottery either. But so anyway, the problem then that we had was um, was um, that they were saying that while they were dreaming a little and then they just, you know, this thing about KPMG would come up, their heart would sink and go, oh, gee, they're coming to me next week or, or they're down in me farm or they're moving into me business, you know. And for them few minutes that they were trying to dream about it, you know, it turned into a nightmare again for them. And when we've travelled around the country, we've had uh, things called Suicide Watch. Have you heard of this groups of men? I have, yeah. Tell us yeah, a bit about that. I thought this was terrible when I was learning about this. There's actually groups of men going around watching other men in things called Suicide Watches because of the, uh, the troubles that people are in. Yeah. And also... Um, what they're also doing then is um, the the uh, the suicide watch people. If they think somebody, the banks are moving in or whatever like this, you know, they'll try and you know call regularly to the person and phone them regularly without letting them really know or checking up on them. Yeah. So we we wrote um, a letter to uh, Dermot Griffin, the CEO of National Lottery, and if you want, I'll read it out here. Yeah, by all means. In front of me. I'll just read it quickly, and it's not, it's not too long-winded. It just says, Dear Sir, I'd like to make it known to you and your organisation of the absolute disgust that the people all over the country portray in, uh, to us in regards of the National Lottery. Now, this is written under the heading of um, People for Economic Justice. Yeah. It says, The source of this comes from your decision to have KPMG as your advisor accountants. I'm not sure if you know, but KPMG are one of the most aggressive receivers in the country, and there seems to be no reasoning with them, as I have personally attended meetings with the agents to try to come to some sort of reasonable solution that may be acceptable to the bank. And I've always found them aggressive and not tuned into the desperation of the person whom whom business is failing. When I've asked one of their agents at a meeting uh, in KPMG head office about a duty of care to the business owner, his reply was, I don't give a toss about my duty of care. I must say I was disgusted with his attitude and then I have in brackets recording, uh, audio recording of meeting available and I said KPMG are moving in on farms and businesses all over the country. With banking fraud uh, and greed and deception rife and the eventual forcing of the good people of this state to bail out uh, the very banks and bankers who now show no remorse to their agents uh, and KPMG showing even less, it galls the Irish people to see them now involved with the lotto, which is largely recognised as doing good work. Uh, the Samaritans organization has told the papers that uh, helplines are, are under pressure with massive volumes of calls. Uh, they, take one, um, they take one call every five seconds, and every 57 seconds someone calls the Samaritans with suicidal feelings. Uh, 
The majority of callers are men in their 30s, and as the recession deepens, Ireland's suicide rate now stands at a shocking 600 deaths per year, and experts believe the figure is rising as the country experiences the pain of recession. A, a well-orchestrated recession, I might add, as well as my own little dig. Mm. Uh, it says the National Suicide Research Foundation's director, Paul Cochran, said, the findings are not a, a coincidence. There's a clear evidence that the recession has impacted on the rate of suicide behaviour in Ireland. So then I said, I now ask you on behalf of People for Economic Justice to terminate all contact with these vultures who hover over the carcasses of dying businesses that their employers help to poison and kill, while KPMG seem, seem intent on finishing off uh, the owners. So that's a letter we, we sent, and then the reply we got back... Oh, so you did was, get a reply? We actually did get a reply, um, and we got a prompt reply. You know, it only took a day because a few people said we probably wouldn't get a reply, but we, we actually did. And in fairness to the guy sending it, it just says here, Dear Mr. Gilroy, thank you for your recent correspondence in relation to the National Lottery's independent auditors, KPMG. He said, the company KPMG were appointed, appointed as independent auditors for the National Lottery through a public procurement process. In accordance with public procurement guidelines, the invitation to tender for this contract was advertised on etenders.gov.ie and was open to interested auditing companies in the European Union. KPMG was selected as the most economically advantageous tender of those received. The National Lottery has entered a contract with KPMG for its services. Our relationships with all our suppliers are governed by contractual terms. KPMG has consistently met all the contractual obligations to the National Lottery. I understand from your letter that you, have, you are dissatisfied in your dealings with KPMG, and I would suggest that you contact KPMG directly to convey your concerns. <laughs> now, I won't tell you what somebody said on Facebook about, if you read between the lines, what that really means. <laughs> well, what strikes me there straight away, Ben, is he hasn't addressed anything that you brought up in your initial letter. Exactly. I mean, you know, just, it was a fob off. Now, so my reply then, you see, because it didn't come from Dermot Griffin, the CEO, in fairness, it came from a guy called Declan. Yeah. Um, so I just said, dear Declan, thank you for your prompt reply. I must say that it was quite a cold corporate response to what a true, uh, to what was a true human tragic concern uh, of one of the causes of suicide. I'm a bit disappointed that Mr. Griffin, to whom the letter was addressed, couldn't take time to reply to the concerns raised by many people around the country. Declan, as head of finance, I'm not really sure why the grave concerns of a growing number of discontented people around the country should fall in your remit. While I don't want to seem ungrateful for a reply, I wasn't asking anything about your finances. Your letter describes the way one tenders for the position that KPMG now holds. My letter merely complained of who they are and the practices they conduct around the country. The letter states that you have a contract with KPMG and they meet their contractual obligations. The inference is to be taken that once they do what they are paid to do, it is of no concern to your company what they do or how they act to your customers the length and breadth of the country. I am reminded of the legal maxim, he who contracts knows or ought to know the quality of the person with whom he contracts, otherwise he is not excusable. Perhaps in the future your company will choose more wisely when contracting with companies like KPMG and won't only consider the most economically advantageous company because in the long run they may turn out to be the most costly for all of us. So 
I don't think we get a response to that, but I mean, at least it just made our feelings known about, you know, where where they are. Controversy now on Facebook about it. Well, not really a controversy, I suppose, more more a, a glowing <laughs> recommendation of what we were doing. Um, and I was a little bit surprised by the response of the lotto, you know, because they are quite. You know, they are quite involved with a lot of charitable organisations, and I'm sure that, you know, they probably do fund Suicide Watch and stuff like that, or even if they don't, I would imagine they should. And for that sort of response to come from them, I was a bit taken back, you know. Well, it's it's almost like, I suppose, a microcosm of what's going on all around the world when it comes to banking and state and corporations and that kind of thing you take a company like the lotto for example and while on one hand they'll do a lot of good work on the other hand they almost seem to negate that work or do worse by dealing with people who are part of the control system or whatever it might be if you look at say the house of rothschild in banking on one hand going back in history they will fund for example one side the nazis in world war ii on the other hand they will fund the allies and why do they do it? Because at the end of the day, t- by creating this duality, they profit and the war machine creates more money and more profit for them. So I, I always look at things in apparent contradictions or paradoxes like that and take it with a pinch of salt because I think if somebody, even if a, an organization, the public face of it can be seemingly charitable or for good, if behind the scenes the hidden hand is doing something contradictory to that, well, I'd be inclined to ask why and why is it a hidden hand? Why can't you get it all out there in the open? I'd have yeah, to question exactly. the motives. And, and you're right. And I thought, by, you see, what really surprised me was just the type of response we got. Because you're right, I agree with you. There's a hidden hand because behind all these large uh, corporations that have huge money going through their books, like the lottery. And but but having said that, with a company like the lottery who has so much money, I, you would imagine they would have had a far sharper PR department to handle that. True. And give a far more compassionate response. That at least we could have said, well, fair play to them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like even if they said, you know, we're contractually bound, and unfortunately, you know, we find this terrible, and we must address it in the future. I mean, they could have just gave the usual spin-off PR nonsense. <laughs> but to get such a cold corporate response was really shocking. I think, you know. <laughs> well, I think it's indicative of where we are with regard to companies and um, organisations, and indeed. Well, it is because I mean, if that's what they're willing to put on paper. Imagine what they're saying privately in the boardroom about Ben Gilroy and his feelings for the people around the country. <laughs> exactly. So to, to go to the issue of, for example, suicide, because it is a major, major issue in Ireland. I mean, anecdotally, it's uh, th- some of the figures that are coming out are up to 600 a year. I mean, you look at all the money being ploughed into road deaths, for example, and that's not to demean uh, road yeah. safety campaigns or anything like that. But but suicides at the moment are in excess of double that, but we hear nothing about it. So what can people yeah, do and, to and empower you know, we themselves? See, we see a lot of it. I won't mention a name in this particular case, but a young farmer came to me and his father has a very successful farm business. And... Um, he he said to me that his uh, his father he had heard him crying on the phone to receivers you know who they are okay yeah. and he heard them crying to the master not to move in and please don't move in and I'll deal with the bank and remember this guy had a successful business he would have got himself out of the trouble and remember the the kindness the, the generosity of the Irish people showed to the banks right this like well, there you trying go. to remind people but anyway they didn't and they moved in on his place and his father hung himself. Right. Now, this young boy was 18 years of age, right? 
And I just thought to myself, you know, what a terrible thing to be telling me, you know. And I really felt sorry for him, you know, and, and helpless for him and everything else. And then to make matters worse, we talk about this cold corporate response, right? He wanted a meeting with the banks because he's a shrewd enough guy, you know, and he's kind of running the business now when the receivers are in and he's trying to work through the problems and pay the bank off. But he did ask for a meeting with the bank. And the bank asked him, would the family get a spokesperson uh, because they wanted emotions left outside the door? Wow. And I just thought, there's the corporate response now. Like, and that's what we should have showed the banks. We should have said, among the Irish people here, we will need one bank. We only need one bank. We're a small little country. We're only the size and population of Manchester. One bank will do us for the time being um, and, and just let every other bank go to the wall. That's what should have happened in this country. Because when you see the way they behave towards uh, these good people who actually produce stuff, I mean, they produce food and they produce, you know, whatever business they're in, they're producing. The banks produce nothing. And for, for, for a company that produced nothing to absolutely own everything in the country, I'm thinking, God, what sort of scam did they pull for that? You know, how, how do they own everything that they can re- repossess everything and they never go to work, you know, in the sense of work, you know, you know what I mean, like a production work where you actually produce something? It, it reminds me almost, sorry to interject, but go, going back yeah. to say... Um penal times where you had the system of landowners and landlords and serfs and it's almost like we're looking at a huge well not almost we are looking at a huge transfer of wealth from the many to the few which will in a sense and I, I know people will start shouting conspiracy theory or whatever let them I'm not really concerned but it's, Look, I, but I don't even have a, I don't even have a theory you know? well it's fact <laughs> never mind a conspiracy <laughs> Well, that's it. And it's a system of enslavement and empowerment. Yeah. And it's being done rather than militarily, as we saw in Africa for decades and going right back in history in South America. We're seeing it done economically now in Europe as we look on or as we look at our TVs and watch X Factor. Yeah, well, you see, I don't want to get too alarmist for people, but I actually see this as World War Three, And... You know, and I don't mean that in an alarmist way or stuff like that, but we were always taught that World War Three would be fought on computers. And actually, they're right. It is. They're, they're, the only tragedies will probably be suicidal people. Um, you know, the, the greatest land grab and asset grab has already started. Yeah. And I seriously think it's because the euro has already crashed. Uh, you know, I, I genuinely believe that, or at least as we know it has crashed. And and they realise it, and and the biggest land grab and asset grab to get everything back has already started. So what can people do, Ben? Because I'm an optimist when it comes to this, and I don't think it's all going to be doom and gloom. But how do you think, or how do people for economic justice think that people can empower themselves so so that they don't go off the deep end? Yeah, well, there's an apathy in this country, um, and. You know, people say to me about the fluoride issue in the water and stuff like that. And, you know, I was never one really for, for buying into that, except for I never really liked the taste of fluoride in water. So we got a reverse osmosis stuff on our tap here. And we got it in about four or five years ago. Yeah. And since then, we, we do drink a lot of water here in the house. And then when I did a little bit of research, I found that uh, 97% of Prozac is fluoride. Did you know that? I did know that. I actually, this is an issue very close to my that, heart. Yeah. But, 
So then I did a little bit more research in it, and I don't want people to say, oh, he's one of them conspiracy theorists, because they even sometimes drive me insane, you know. But look, fact is fact. Fluoride is, is basically a, um, a Prozac, and it's in our water. Because, you know, 97%, I think, uh, some high figure of Europe does not have uh, fluoride in their water. That's but it's in ours, right. and normally we'd be a rebellious sort of spirit and maybe do it in our water on purpose. I really don't know, and I'm not an expert on it, so I don't want to pretend I am or anything, but there's something that we're all seem to be so apathetic about things. Like, you know, when we call demonstrations, and you'd imagine that people would turn out in their thousands, and you'd be lucky if you got two or three hundred people out. For the most taxing issues, like, I, I think we live in exciting times, and you're right, I'm an optimist as well. I see the glass always as half full. And we live in very exciting times, and probably the most exciting times of any of our lives, but also the most important. And, like, you still see people, they're more interested in who's winning X Factor than, than what's happening outside their windows. Yeah. And that's a huge problem. So we decided then that maybe demonstrations and stuff like that probably weren't the best way to go. So we said, right, what can we do? Because most people will support you from the armchair. And if you can encourage enough people to come out and vote for you, um, they, you know, if people trust you and they feel, well, you're the guy and you, you, you'll change for the better, you know, of course, you know, I mean, for anybody knows I could be conning everybody too, but I mean, the point is that at some stage you have to trust someone. <laughs> and, you know, if a guy promises you something and he delivers, great. If he doesn't deliver and he can still come around to you and say, look, the reason he can't deliver is because they're doing this or that or whatever, then at least you're chipping away at them in the public eye. Also, the reason we brought the court case against the government is we really think that's where we can maybe hit them hard for a small number of people like us. Um, because if, like what we're basically saying when we go to court for this uh, injunction um, is that you, know, you have to stop all payments of our sovereign money out of this country where there's no mandate for that until you either call a referendum or we have a full court case about whether the government has the right to do it or not. And we would always say in court that you know, the balance of convenience lies in favour with not paying out the money exactly. because the government certainly won't be at a loss for paying it out. And they can say to their cohorts in Germany or wherever that, you know, the hands are tied because there's a court case and, you know, until the court case is heard, you know, can't pay any more money out. And I remember when we were in court the first time about this case, I actually said to the judge that it was an unusual case. I said, this is a case that I've never kind of seen before where the plaintiff and the, the defendants both want the same outcome. Because, um, now I said it sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I said to the judge that I've heard the government on many occasions saying we don't want to pay back this money. <laughs> and I said, so, so if that's the defendant's position that they don't want to pay back the money, and the plaintiff's <laughs> position is they don't want to pay back the money, <laughs> what's the problem? <laughs> well, what is the problem? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know also that... Um, on Vincent Brown, again, if you look at our website or if you Google, or sorry, on YouTube, if you do a search, Vincent Brown and Bondholders, you'll see on one of his shows, Simon Coveney was on it and uh, Claire Leonard was on it. No, sorry, Claire Daly. Yep. Yeah, Claire Daly, isn't it, yeah? And um, she was on it with him and we gave Claire Daly the list of bondholders. Because at the time, if you remember, the government were saying, oh, we don't know who the bondholders are. Do you remember they were speeding That's right, nonsense? Yeah. Okay. Now, the reason for that, a lot of people are saying, sure, why would the government say that? So what difference would it make who they are, who they are? Well, I'll tell you the real reason. In 
2008, an advisory group came over to Ireland to advise the government on the best way out of the financial mess it found itself in. Now, actually, the government uh, and the Irish state didn't find itself in any trouble. The banks found themselves in trouble. Exactly. And so they called over these experts uh, in finance to give us advice. And we, I believe the government paid big money for this advice. It certainly wasn't free. But anyway, I knew that on this advisory group, you had the likes of um, the Rothschilds. Yeah. For instance. Okay. Now, there lies the crux of the problem. Because when the advice was to bail out the bondholders, if you're in government, you better not list the bondholders, especially if the Rothschilds are on it. Yeah, because, because they can't be seen to, to be say, bailing wow, themselves out. we just get duped? Was there a conflict of interest in the advice we got? And of course, that's the truth. I mean, that's why we gave it to Vincent Brown, and you'll see him reading it out, and then he comes to the Rothschilds, and he just says it, and then you'll actually see him looking into the camera and going, yeah, Rothschilds, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Now, again, you know, forget about conspiracy theories, because this is this nonsense that keeps saying, the minute you mention anything, you know, like it's, it's like this elephant in the room, do you know what I mean? And, and nobody wants to mention the big elephant in the room because the minute you say it, everybody goes, oh, conspiracy theorist. You know, no, yeah. I'm not. I mean, I'm not. But the fact is, the Rothschilds were on the advisory group that came to Ireland that we paid big money for, for advice and they're also on the bondholders list. Major bondholders, probably the major bondholders along with Goldman Sachs and a few others. And I'm sorry if people think that that's a conspiracy theorist. It's not. It's fact. Well, it's not. And I think the media are largely responsible for dirtying the term conspiracy theory. And it's yeah, become this. Yeah. I this mean, I, I'm not, I don't even have a theory. You know, uh, I'm not a theorist about anything. You know, I actually, I I'm probably am a conspiracy theorist. I actually think that a guy living in the desert um, wearing some sort of funny pajamas actually did take down the Twin Towers. Right, okay. Or, or is it the other way around? I can't remember. Does that make me a conspiracy theorist or not? Or a realist? I can't remember. <laughs> well, I'll let you decide that for yourself, but uh, yeah, the, point exactly, stands. Yeah. the point stands. I mean, it's always funny. The BBC reporters could find this guy anytime they wanted for an interview, yet the most intelligent with the sophisticated equipment they all had could never find them. <laughs> exactly. But And I'm the conspiracy theorist, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we digress. So, you know, it's it's funny, like, uh, as you say, media, but the media is all controlled and everything too, you know, RT, complete waste of time. I mean, they call themselves a news channel. Please, you know, they'll tell us if there's a death on the road or something like that, but you're not a news channel, you know. <laughs> I remember uh, a, um, uh, he was a good guy, I just can't think of his name, in the UK, and it's gone back a while, and I remember he was saying about the papers in in as well, how they were called, contrived by Maxwell and a few of them. And he said, like, he remembers that the Falkland War was on and the Belgrano, was that the name of it? There was some yeah, and stuff like right. that, and there was other tragedies. And he said, what was the headline in one of the papers? <laughs> Freddie Starr has ate my hamster. <laughs> well, well, there you go. I, that headline itself even spawned uh, a, a series of comics and computer games, Rockstar Ate My Hamster. Well, I just remember always this guy talking about the press, like, you know, that, that this is what was going on in the world and then this was the headline of the paper <laughs> it really is think, but it is a bit like that here too like you know it is so and you, I you think there's a... see, like I, I seen one time I think when we actually lodged this case a couple of months ago and I forget what the headline in the paper was it was something about um, oh, what do you call it you want Katie Price had broken up with somebody just the cage fighter or something you know and yeah. I just looked and I thought to myself 
Now, please, don't call yourself a newspaper if you're going to do this nonsense. Like, there's real news happening. We're a small country, and, and this is the news, you know? Well, that's it, and I think the, the problem being for most people, and it's very difficult to blame many people because they don't know any other way, and I would have been the same for for a long period of time in my life, but... Once you do start to kind of look for alternative sources of news, and you do have to be quite diligent in sorting the wheat from the chaff, but you, you, yeah. you'll develop, a, I suppose, a certain skill at doing that. Yeah, I mean, look, you've got to put, I keep saying to people, look, you've got to put your bullshit filter on as well. Exactly. I mean, because you go on the internet and you believe everything that's on that. Gee, man, you never sleep at night. So, you, so try to remain a bit sensible, but you must know by looking out the window that there's something wrong. And then all the papers all last week were just about that um, royal that had her tits out. You know, I mean, come on, please, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> See, it's that sort of nonsense that drives me insane. And driving, I think, increasingly people insane because I've, I've kind of picked up over the last year that there is a slight, uh, certainly amongst younger people, and yeah, a lot I think of they my, are more tuned in, in fairness. And that's my only uh, hope, uh, you know, my glimmer of hope for the country is, is that, that that new generation of people coming up um, will will maybe do some good because uh, uh, somebody put a poster on my Facebook there the other day, I just thought it was great. It just said that due to the recent cutbacks, the light at the end of the tunnel has been switched off. <laughs> <laughs> Poignant. <laughs> so hopefully the young people can switch it back on again. Well, fingers crossed. And moving back to the present, I suppose. Um, yeah. Ben, you're you're very very active yourself with regard to. Uh, well, I suppose a lot of people will have seen the famous video of you successfully halting this so-called sheriff uh, yeah. s- somewhere in Ireland. So you're very active when it comes to lawfully. Um, standing up for people who are being bullied and shat upon from a height by banks yeah. and receivers and those who we perceive to be in positions of power. And for anybody who might be in a position like that and worried, would you have any advice that you could give them? How can they empower themselves? Yeah, well, you see, we, we try to kind of educate people and, and, you know, somebody suggested should we do maybe a day's class somewhere and it's something we're really looking into. Yeah. It's about basically, you see, you're never taught your rights in this country, you know, and, um, you know, anybody who's basically diminishing your rights, you, you just need to question and you don't have to do with bad language or stuff like that. You'll never see us, at uh, least we try our best not to use bad language. I mean, sometimes they just infuriate you so much that you can't help but being passionate. But in, in general, there's a, there's a right way to do it. And when you question these people, they've never been questioned before. And you can see they've never been questioned before. And I keep going back to the trust issue and the trustee. You know, uh, we are the administrators and the beneficiaries of the trust of the state, you know, and and the government and these government agencies, be they police or traffic men or whatever you want to call them, they are all trustees of ours. And, and that's why they're known as public servants. You know, they're the servants of the sovereign people. And somehow, you know, the whole relationship in a matter of our and we're a very relatively new state yeah so it didn't take us long to absolutely lose the whole thing i mean it's like watching you know the director managing director of a coming in uh, coming in and the window cleaner telling them what to do and then the window cleaner getting in his nice bentley and driving off i mean we would all look at that and go that was mad you know but yeah we accept it every day that's when people you know just 
take money off us and put the hand in your pocket for something and invade your home or whatever it might be with absolutely no lawful authority. They might have legal authority, you know, probably too too messy to go into. And we might do another show about that because you could do a whole show on legal and lawful. But yeah. But basically, you know, I keep saying, if you just question your rights, like, I mean, we put up a, a clamp or video there, we, I think it's probably taken down now, because, you know, I'm not for anarchy, you know, or I'm not for revolt, or I'm not for violence, but what I am for is when someone diminishes your rights, you've got to stand up for yourself. Yeah. You know there's a maxim in law that he who doesn't stand up for his rights has no rights. And I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that's a good maxim. But it's one that you should, you should know that should be taught you in school. And also, if you don't know what your rights are, it's very hard to stand up for them. I agree, because and the onus is very much upon the individual, really. It is, yeah. And that's why um, another maxim in law would say that um, ignorance is no defense in the law. Or, or law will not support someone who slumbers on their rights. Yeah. So it, it is encumbering on everybody to learn what their, what their rights are. And that's why we try to help. And we always say to people, look, if you can't stand up for your rights with a clamper, say, for instance. I mean, there's a guy, you're just minding your own business. You're probably parked outside a court or a hospital because this is where they normally know there's good picking grounds. Mm. And what I mean by that is when you go into a court or into a hospital, chances are you don't know how long you're going to be. So you probably put in two euro, three euros, probably the max you're allowed. And you could be in your wife, might be having a child, or you could be in court in an important case, and then you come out and there's a clamp on your car. And I mean, that's just not right, people. There's, there's somebody <laughs> infringing on your rights. And it's these corporations that are doing it. And I mean, you know, look at the ticket on the window. It says Dublin Corporation. <laughs> So, in one of the things we did anyway, we came out of court, we were helping someone who um, was in the fear of losing their home and we were fighting in the high court for them. And when we came out, we had a little car and there was a clamp on it. And so we were pushing, there is a little trick you can do with clamps, you know, you push the wheel over the first part of the chain and it loosens the clamp. And although it doesn't come off because you're, it's around, the, I'm not good on cars now, but I think it's called um, um, some sort of axis or something, a shock absorber or whatever, but it's around that part anyway, so you can't get it off. But what you can do is it loosens the whole clamp that you can get it under the car and you can cable tie it up. <laughs> okay. So we were doing this and the clamper guy comes along and he says to us, um, you know, you've been watched on cameras, lads, you know, so he said, you know, you have to pay or the police will be called. So rather than get into any sort of hassle or anything, he said, look, we've no money. Um, I said, will you take a promissory note? Right? And he said, no. And, well, I said, that's the only way we can pay right now. Yeah. And then my friend Johnny, he had actually a check that a solicitor had given him to do something that the solicitor wasn't willing to do, but we did it. It wasn't uh, um, unlawful, but it probably wasn't legal, if you know what I mean. So there's a big difference there. But yeah, there is. A anyway, when you're, when you're a barrister or a solicitor, you're sworn to uphold the legal nonsense. So, um, so we said, look, we'll give you this solicitor's check. It was made out to Johnny. And he said that we said, you know, you can phone up and see if the if the check is bona fide. And um, he rang his boss and they wouldn't accept that. What they wanted us to do was pay with a credit card. Now, we don't have a credit card. Mm. So where's, what did he want us to do? Did he want us just to walk home, stand in the rain forever? I, I don't know what they wanted. Do you know what I mean? There's no reason. 
uh, of this kind of impasse of nonsense while he was still even willing to pay them. And I did say to him, look, I'll give you an IOU, because the guy knew who I was. And I said to him, look, I'm an honorable guy. If I give you an, an IOU for 80 euro, I'll come back in the next couple of days and I'll pay you. Yeah. He still wasn't willing to do that. Well, at that stage, I was being honorable and he wasn't. So I said, look, there's nothing else we can do, then we'll see you. So we sat cable kind of up, and of course, next minute, a cop comes along. And in most cases, um, the guards would know me and I know them. And we, we get on quite well with guards. I mean, I've no problem with a guard. Yeah. But this guy was a bit, you know, he just thought he was in command of the whole earth. And, you know, he thought he had all the authority ever given to any man under a hat. And we had to point out that that wasn't the case. So, you know, he got a bit annoyed with us, you know, because he thought that the minute he took out his notebook, we were supposed to shudder and stuff like that. And because we didn't and started asking him questions... He never had that before, you know, so he basically threatened me with um, that he would do me for interfering with a camp, okay? That was the first thing he threatened me with. <laughs> I asked him, could he quote that law to me? <laughs> I wasn't aware of it. <laughs> and, um, well, you know, we had a bit of fun with that because he couldn't quote a law of interfering with a clamp, right? So he then got a bit annoyed and he told me, because my friend Johnny was rolling the car back and forth and we were cable tying it up and Johnny said, we're nearly ready to go now, we're nearly ready to go. And the guard said to me, if you drive off of that, he says, I'll do you for a test, right? So because I said to him, do you know much about larceny? Because I said, you'd have to prove that at no time did we offer payment, and I said, that camper guy there, tell you, I offered him payment on three different locations with three different instruments. And I said, secondly, I said, they have attached their product to our automobile. We don't want it. We've told them, take it back. And I said, how could that be theft? <laughs> so at that stage, you know, Johnny was saying, come on, man, come on, I'm ready to go. And we were saying to the guard, are we free to go? You know, are we under arrest? Are we free to go? Because you can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. <laughs> if you drive off and that, he says, I'll do you for dangerous driving. And I just said, while I'm here talking to you on a footpath. And with that, he just turned and he just walked off and he was fuming. I'd say if he could have done us for anything, he would have given us six months. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that we, like, I know them clown videos and stuff that we put up are frivolous, you know. Yeah. But And people think we're putting them up to take the piss out of the police. Honestly, folks, we, we don't do that. We respect the guards and they do have a difficult job and all that, you know. But at the same time, sometimes they bring the difficulties upon themselves because... Look, that was a private contractual arrangement between us and the clamper, us and the corporation. Okay? Yes. It was a civil matter, and it didn't involve Gardaí. The Gardaí were standing there wasting their time when some old lady might have been mugged further up the road. But furthermore, Ben, they're not entitled to get involved then if it's a civil matter, presumably. Of course. Well, that's what we tried to point out to him, but he just thought that, you know, he worked for the corporations. And, and, and that's why you'll see me in one of the other videos. I actually said to a guard, what corporation are you working for today, officer? Yeah. And he still didn't get it. You know, they don't get it. Or maybe they do get it, but maybe they're just told, look, this is, this is your job and this is what you do. Mm-hmm. So the whole relationship has gone wrong. And that's why, like, I actually said to a policeman one time when he was getting a bit aggressive at me, I said, look, I respect the police. I said, and, and you should respect people who respect you because there's very few of us left. And I do see that in society, that we don't respect the police enough. And then people are saying, oh, but look what you do. And I'm saying, but I'm not doing that to disrespect police. I think we should respect police, but we should do it when they are doing the proper job. And we should remind them when they're not doing the proper job. And it's as simple as that. I mean, there was no breach of peace. 
There was nobody threatened. There was no damage. There was no criminal damage. There was nothing going on. It was just a pure civil matter. We couldn't pay. We had to go. Simple. If they wanted their stuff back, they could have just taken it off. And, you know, that's, that's it. But what, what, the reason I'm putting up the video, like people say, why would you put it up on YouTube? The, the idea of that is that with so many people in trouble now with receivers and with banks threatening to take their homes and people being suicidal, mm. what we're trying to educate the people to do is that if you don't stand up for your rights with even a clamper, if you're too nervous to do that with even a clamper or a guard or whatever it might be, you will have no hope when you go to the high court. Because the problem is in the high court is when you go into the high court, the whole thing is designed for intimidation. Yeah. You know, the, the judge sitting up high and they speak a funny language called legalese and they wear wigs and gowns and they bow and it's religious and, you know, and it's designed for you to shit yourself when you go in. Mm. That's, that's the whole makeup of it. And so, like, if you're losing your home or business, right, you do not have the 20,000 euro, 25,000 euro required for a barrister. Yeah. And there is no free legal aid. I don't know if people know that listening, but there's no free legal aid for you. And also in civil courts, you are presumed guilty. You know, there's a presumption of guilt rather than innocent. You have to prove yourself innocent. So you're on hiding to nothing. Sorry? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you don't even show up, they get what's called a default judgment because you didn't come in to prove you're innocent, so you were guilty. See? So... There's huge things against you here, and these are commercial commercial courts, and of course the guard of the commercial court is the bank. The bank write these banking acts and banking laws and all. They're written by the banks mm. and signed off by the Minister of Finance. So the, the whole thing is set up to get whatever it is they want off you. So, you know, I had a man come down to me from Monaghan, and he was under threat of the sheriff coming to take his home. And I said to him, but did you go to court? And he said, no. He said, because he said, I was never in court in my life then, not even for a parking ticket. And he said, I wouldn't be able to go to the high court or know what to say. I mean, the whole system is wrong anyway. And then the more I thought about that, I was thinking to myself, this man was a builder. And you know when you shook his hands, little hard hands on him, you knew he was a worker all his life, right? Yeah. I'm thinking to myself, this guy now is in, in a chance of losing his home. And all the taxes that he has paid all through his life, okay, Say you see a little scumbag and he robs an L1 of our handbag and injects or, you know, with a syringe or whatever to get our handbag, right? When that guy is caught by the police, the state will provide him with whatever legal team he wishes. Yeah. And if he's not even happy with them during the case, he can sack them and get another legal team, okay? And this is paid for by the taxes of, say, the likes of this builder, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yet when this guy is in court... For losing his home, the state give him nothing. He has to either speak for himself or just give up his home. Now, there's something inherently wrong with that. Again, maybe it's me. <laughs> maybe I just have this sense of fairness that's off the scales. No, it's but not I'm just you. But I'm hoping that I, I'm like-minded people agree with me. I mean, I just think it's crazy. It is crazy. And you mentioned a word and it's an extremely powerful word. That's fear, because I think fear is the driving force behind the whole system that we're talking about, whether it's uh, talking to a a guard or a policeman, whether it's standing in the high court or whether it's something on a, a much simpler level altogether. People are really driven by fear. And until that fear can be removed, people aren't in a position to stand up for themselves, I believe. And I think the system is designed in exactly that way. Yeah, it is. And you see, 
the fear will really only go through the education of your rights. Yeah. And you know what your rights are. Like, if, if you were eating an apple and somebody just walked up to you and just hit the apple out of your hand, you know, you get real annoyed about it and you'd fight that guy, you know, and, and kick him in the arse or something because you knew he didn't have the right to do that. Yeah. See? And it's about educating. And once you know what your right is, when someone diminishes your right, Irish people are good fighters. The problem is we don't know what our rights are. So we don't know I how mean, to fight. Yeah, well, you don't know how to fight. If you, if you thought somebody was doing something wrong on you, and, and this is the way you should fight it, you will do it. But, you know, we were brought up, and, and you know, maybe our parents are to blame, but, you know, they were doing it for the right reasons. But we were taught to respect all these institutions. You know, we were taught to respect guards, and I still teach my children that. But yeah. at the same time, I'm not going to have a guard diminish any of my children's rights. Of course. But at the same time, if I see a guard in trouble, I would be the first to jump in and help him. You, you understand what I mean? Yeah. So, like, but we were taught to respect all these institutions like the banks, um, the church, the legal system. You know, we were taught to respect all these and every one of them is, is uh, literally screwing us, you know? And, and it's because of, you know, we, we, we respected them without the knowledge of knowing when they overstepped the mark. Or you couldn't question them. Like my parents used to tell me that you couldn't question a priest. They can't ask him. They can't say that to a priest. You can't ask him, you know, where does God live? Or you just couldn't answer a question. Like, mm, you know? Yeah. And that was the problem, I suppose, from, from my father's time. My father, you know, probably left school early and they weren't really from a rebellious sort of generation, you know, like from people born in the 60s and onwards would have been. But my parents would have been born in the 30s, so, you know, they, they were not a rebellious age, and, and they grew up through wars, so, you know, they, they grew up at ration books, so when they got an extra apple, they thought it was Christmas time. So, you see, like, we come from a different generation now, and that's probably not a bad thing, because young people today, you know, if you educate them on the rights, you won't stop young people in this country. Yeah. Because there's nobody will diminish their rights once you tell them what their rights are, and that's what we hope to do. So, Ben, if people want to get in touch or if they feel that uh, they would like to empower themselves and learn more about their rights, and let's face it, we all should, but if, pe if, yeah. if, if people really feel that they want to do that, how should they go about it or what can they do? Can they get in touch with People for Economic Justice or is there any other outlet for them? Yeah, I mean, People for Economic Justice is probably good in the sense that if they're, if they're interested in doing a course or something like that, we'll probably run a course on, on what we call common law because your common law rights are, are really terrific, you know, um, because you don't need, like, Bill of Rights or any of this. You don't need it written down. Just because it's in the Bill of Rights doesn't mean it gave you that right. It's merely listing rights you already had, even the Constitution. Constitution doesn't give you rights. It merely mentions some that you have. Like, when I sign letters, I always put all rights reserved at the bottom. Yeah. I don't diminish any of my rights. Why should I? I mean, <laughs> and I, I, as I keep saying, I'm not anti-government or I'm not pro-revolution or any of that stuff. But I am for, for your rights and standing up for your rights. And everybody should do that. And the more people actually empower themselves with their rights and educating themselves in that sense the easier it gets as people go along and the more they, they realise that it's really just a case that everything is a game and that, that's not now to belittle anything but it is a game and unless you know for, for example if you for the first time go to play a game of chess and you're playing Garry Kasparov the grand chess master and you don't mm -hmm. know the rules of chess you're going to be eaten alive you're having to hope and that's 
the system that we're living in at the moment. We are the guys, or most people, they don't know the rules of the game, whereas the solicitors, barristers, or people who are ingrained in the system, judges, whoever it might be, they do know the rules. So obviously yeah. they're going to gobble up the ordinary person. Whereas That's if it. you do know the rules, they're not expecting you to, and you then have the upper hand because you have the element of surprise, and you can use the very rules that they have set out against them. Oh yeah, you can beat them with a, with a stick. And you see, the beauty about this is it's all non-violent. It, it actually is not even as it non-violent, it's empowering, and it's only words. That's why they say the sword, or the, the pen is mightier than the sword, because, you know, it really is, it's all just words. Once you know the right words, that's all you need. You don't need to tell people, you know, to F off and blah, blah, blah. And I, but I see that, you know, uh, anger in young people, you know, when they get annoyed with a clamper or whatever, you know, they'd be calling you a foreign this and you dissy this. And, yeah. you know, you actually, because you're only annoying yourself and they're actually laughing at you, you know, and they're antagonizing you even more. And when you actually know the right words and actually how to do it, it, it's actually much easier. That's why if you listen to my phone call that we recorded with one of the clamper companies, I don't know if you heard it. I but did. It, yeah, it was funny because I was very calm. And you'll see this guy, he just, it was like I felt from Mars that he was talking to. Like at several times during the phone com conversation, he kept saying, let, let me get this straight, you know. And then he kept saying, no, you don't understand, he kept saying to me. <laughs> and it was like this Martian had arrived on his table and he was trying to explain the rules to him. And he just couldn't guess it, that if he could make up figures, like he just pulled, say, oh, if I remove the clamp, there'll be a 560 euro fine. You know, now, the way I look at that is that's a figure he just pulled out of his arse or somebody did in his company, right? Mm -hmm. and, and because he's obviously trained in a certain way and gets his wage on Friday, he assumes that this must be the most powerful job in the world. <laughs> and he couldn't believe that a guy like me could just phone him up. And I could just pull the figure out of my arse as well. <laughs> So I came back with, I'm going to charge you 200 euro a day storage for the clamp. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see, like, you know, he was a good guy. Don't get me wrong. The guy was a very nice guy. But I would love to have watched him on camera. I mean, I would have actually paid for that because I'd say his head was spinning. You know, I would love to have seen his facial expressions because even by the way he was speaking, he was just like amazed that somebody could be. And he kept saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Or, you know, he was so flabbergasted by it. And the same with the receiver videos still up on YouTube, but the receiver comes to take back a premises. And again, he was a great character, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but you can see the minute we say stuff to him. <laughs> the guy nearly goes into this sort of tizzy, like, you know. <laughs> and, and even with the video you mentioned with the sheriff, you clearly hear the sheriff saying that I, I have been doing this job 37 years and no one ever questioned me. And that's exactly it. It's the power of questions, isn't it? Yeah. yeah well, I always think about my, my poor parents who are dead now, and I always think that if the sheriff was coming with two guards, they would have just handed up everything. Even yeah. if they were in trouble with the bank. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if the sheriff said he was coming to take your stuff and the guards were with him, once they seen him turning up, they would have just handed the keys, even if they weren't in bank debt. <laughs> and I think a lot of people are still like that. They are. Actually, look, we meet them every day of the week. You see, I, you, I don't know if you've seen the RT report with Seamus Sherlock and that. I have, yeah. It was a bit of a hatchet job, and they gave all these figures that, oh, it's only 1% and thing, and it's 20 times worse in the North. But in actual fact, you see, what, what RT are hiding there is that they don't class them as repossessions when people out of fear hand back the keys. 
because the sheriff is threatening to come. Okay, so they don't count on the the official stats. Yeah, and there's something like 18 handbags of property every day. And that's far more than the North in repossessions. But because they don't class it that way, and that's why they keep talking about word magic, you know, (laughs) always watch word magic and ask exactly what do you mean by that? You know, what do you mean by repossession? So that's why it really annoys me when I hear this bloody nonsense. And then that Brendan Burgess fellow from AskAboutMoney.com, you see what we put up on our site about him? Yes, I mean, this, this guy, you know, he blames everybody in trouble with the banks. You know, if you're in trouble with a bank, it must be your fault. Like, where did he get this guy? And they always wheel him out on RTE. And, of course, we have a video up where in 2008, he was advising everyone to buy bank shares, among, among all things. <laughs> and he had even said on the documentary to Brian Dobson, he said, uh, people should be filling their shoes with bank shares. <laughs> Shares were about seven euro a share. <laughs> They're not even seven cent a share now. And maybe these people in trouble actually listened to him and took his advice. <laughs> yeah, well, I think people, the minute they hear anyone in RT or whether uh, people who claim but, to be economists because they have a piece of paper, they need to just close their ears. Ah, uh, look, they, they keep wheeling out these these guys, though, you know, and I, they never let me on with them, you know, because, <laughs> I, you know, I would have just told Brendan Burgess straight, sure, you're not the guy to call people to fill their shoes with bank shares, so maybe that's why they're in trouble, you idiot, you would you get off the station. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's such fun. Just on a serious note, I actually forgot to mention to you, and I want to send my condolences to the family. I heard um, some terrible news there just yesterday that... Um, I don't know if you remember the guy where the uh, sheriff broke into the house in Beaumont. Yes, And the uh, chap took a heart attack on the floor. Yes. His sisters were in financial difficulty too, and one of them took her life yesterday. So, yeah. You know, and of course, you see, it, I was talking to a bank manager who I meet regularly. He's like a, an agony ant that goes around and he meets people in trouble, and he agony ants them basically with bullshit, and then it's passed on to the next stage of solicitors. But... Um, he told me out straight that seven people on his round committed suicide. And he said to me, Ben, I can't say that they committed suicide because of financial difficulties. And neither can I, obviously. Yeah. Unless they leave a note saying it's because of financial difficulties, you know. But what he did say to me is that I can tell you they were in financial difficulties. Yeah. And I think that's the shame that we have in this country, you know, because we're a proud people, you know. And that's the problem sometimes we have as a group going around trying to help people is that the, probably the people who really need the help aren't saying it, you know? Well, that's it. Uh, and as you say, it is the great shame of this country and it's something that has to change. And you've given a number of reasons, the main one being self-empowerment and self-responsibility and how people can step up to the mark and try to remove some of that fear that really has people cowering in corners all over the country at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we help people fight in court. And what we do is... We helped them drag the court case for years through the court, costing hundreds of thousands. Yeah. You see? And if we can do that with everybody, the whole idea of bringing someone to court becomes just not attractive proposition whatsoever because your house is probably worth 180000 And if you meet up with Ben Gilroy, he can drag it through the High Court and the Supreme Court and everything else and completely mess the system and everything. Uh, if I can drag it up to be a half a million in legal fees, well, should they know they're not going to get it off you? Should they make you homeless? What are they going to do? Come ask you for half a million legal fees? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And I think if there's one piece of advice maybe for anybody who might be receiving a summons through the door or whatever, 
if it's a summary summons, do your utmost to change that into a plenary case so that you can clog up the courts and oh, and actually defend yeah, yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we showed them how to do that as well, you know. Well, Ben, tell us about the website. Um, you've got a mailing list there as well. So how can people subscribe to that and get well, more they just, information? They just turn on. I don't think there's much even to fill in. I'm not one of these techie guys. We have a very good guy called Ferdia down in Waterford who runs our websites free of charge for us. And we have a lot, a lot, a lot of good people around the country who who donate to the site and who give up time to us free and who... Yeah. I had a guy uh, donate a car to me because he knew I had no car to get around the country. Now, it was only a little banger. Don't get me wrong. And I'm I'm most thankful to them. Yeah. But like, you know, it's just that sort of generosity that you get from people or people coming up into the street. Like I had a man, right, come up to me and uh, I don't want to be disrespectful to him, but he didn't look like he had a lot of money, if you know what I mean. Okay. You know, a very nice guy. And he came up to me and gave me a tenner towards the cause, he said. <laughs> and I just thought that was amazing because, you know, I'm sure it was probably half of what he had in his pocket, you know. <laughs> And I just, you know, it's encouraging that when when you see a guy who probably didn't have much himself giving you nearly half of what he has, there's a lot to be said for that. There absolutely is. That's the human side of it. And I think that's what needs to be uh, nurtured. And forget about these faceless, nameless corporations because yeah they're yeah but they're definitely you have a guy like that and he just comes up to you like we were just coming through town with my wife and my mother-in-law and this guy was just talking to me and then when I walked down to my wife and I said who's that and I said that guy just gave me a tenner towards helping us with what we're doing you know yeah. and my wife goes you didn't take it on him did you and I said well he gave it to me he wanted to give it to me I said he looks like he could have done with this you're missing the point yeah <laughs> you know like you know he wanted to give it you know I didn't want to insult him then and not take it because he really wanted to give it you know and I just thought there's just something great about that moment not that look at people have donated on our website 100 euros and stuff like that you know and they're, they're all terrific but just that moment when I actually met the guy face to face you know there's just something magical in that moment I think it, it defined a lot of what's in the country today as well well that's it and it's the humanity that people need to focus on and I mean of course yeah. I mean there's businessmen around the country who've given us offices in different parts of the country like we've an office here in Trim where we meet with people in trouble and stuff like that and, and that office was just donated to us the phones are paid the electricity is paid the guy never asked us for a cent you know he doesn't ask us to do anything for him he, he doesn't ask us you know he doesn't ask us to lobby or you know he, he's not looking for anything he just likes what we're doing and said fair play to you I've been off the stairs sitting going to waste he said if, if somebody wants to rent it he said I might ask you to leave but right now it's sitting there doing nothing and you're entitled and welcome to it well that's extremely I mean, encouraging to hear and yeah. I think as time goes on, we'll hear more and more of these stories because something has to give somewhere along the way. And people are slowly but surely, I think, realizing that they're not beholden or at the behest of faceless corporations. It is about humanity and people need to, I suppose, foster that human spirit as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. And it does, like, for someone like me who always seems to be fighting the system, you know, and at times you feel like you're on your own doing it and you sometimes wonder, God, am I doing the right thing or I just look after me and my own family you know mm. 
because it's hard and it does get in on you. And then you're in when you're in fighting in court for these people, you know, you take a lot on yourself personally, you know. Yeah. And I do have headaches and, you know, you're waking up at night thinking about something. Did I do the affidavit right for him? Did I fight it right in the court for him? You know, am I leading them down the right path? Or, you know, you take a lot of responsibility on yourself. And sometimes, you know, some days you have low days where you just feel like I'm going to give up. And as I say, that's the day then where a fella comes up and just gives you a car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, no, don't get me wrong, it was a banger of a car, but like it was just the gesture of it. Like, here's a car that I've been, I'm not really using it, and I know you don't have one for going around the country, so here, you know. And it was a, an old Merc, you know, and it, but it was just terrific, like, to get it because myself and Johnny and that we could drive to Cork in a bit of comfort, you know, and it was a guzzler and stuff, but still, like, you know, it's just a moment like that. It's, it wasn't the car. It was the, it was the action of giving it yeah. and recognizing of what we were doing. And that then is a day where you, you really feel then, oh, no, you're, you're obviously doing the right thing or at least other people recognize what you're trying to do, even if you're doing it wrong. You know what I mean? I'm not saying I'm great or I'm doing it the right way, but it's just the recognition sometimes that, you know, there I recognize what you're doing and, and I like it. A man come up to me on Sunday. Um, I just happened to be in town with my kids. And, you know, when you're with your kids, and you, know, you forget that people may know you, you know, so I was just getting off the dart with my kids and I'm just going for a walk around town and... Um, this old man was getting on the dark station and I thought he was giving out to me because I wasn't minding my daughter properly because I turned and grabbed her by the arm because she tends to run off and we were on the Lewis tracks and that, you know. Yeah. And he, he comes up to me and goes, you, you, you know, and it was really like kind of aggressive. You know? And then he says, eh, well done, you. And that's all he said and he got on the dark and, or on the Lewis and I just seen him travelling off in the distance. Then he stood there with my mouth open because he didn't say, well done, you, what, or, you know, and his manner was aggressive, if you know what I mean. He could have very easily been given out some before I actually heard what he said. <laughs> so you funny incidents like that too. And then you feel great. And I don't mean that in a big-headed way or anything, but, you know, sometimes you have down days as well and when you lose in court or you get, like quite often we get ripped in court. And I'm not a I'm not a sore loser. I mean, the other day we lost in court, and I have to say the judge was a very very fair judge. You know, really really fair judge gave us a good hearing and everything. And in the end, I you know I kind of agreed with him to be honest. But you know, a very fair judge. But you know, they're like hen's teeth as well. I got to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had judges change court rules and everything on us. And remember, we're just what they not what's known as lay litigants. You know, outside the church, and also we're lay people. Yeah. Well, Ben, um, the work that you're doing is to be highly commended and I would recommend that everybody check out peopleforeconomicjustice.com. There are similar movements springing up and I, I don't like to use the word movement because it's, it's not necessarily, I mean, it's not necessarily a political thing. It's just about self-empowerment, but it's happening yeah. all over the world now, particularly in the US where people are really, we don't hear much about it in the media, but the, the situation is very, very bleak economically over there as well. It's not all Disney World and presidential elections as we would be led to believe. And um, yeah. <laughs> I would like to thank you for coming on to Alchemy Radio and talking in such depth with me, Ben. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Sure, thanking you. And uh, to all your folks, watch this space. And maybe, you know, when we're bringing the government to court, come in and watch maybe a moment in history because I think that we can get a lot of supporters into the court. Um, it does change the atmosphere within the court because remember, we're asking the court to go against their paymaster because their paymaster is in the dock and that's always going to be a difficult situation. Well, we'll certainly speak to you again closer to the time and uh, rally the troops, so to speak. That's it. Ben, it's been great. Thank you very much. No, but I'll see you folks. Bye-bye. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio.